This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares. I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. And this week we're joined by a very special guest, Andy Bell, Chief Exec of AJ Bell, here for the first time. Hi, Andy. Hi, Dan. So this week we're going to have a quick look at what's been happening in the markets, and then we're going to talk about the latest figures that show where we've all been spending our money, why so-called safe haven funds have failed, and Andy's going to give us a little behind-the-scenes look at AJ Bell's recent stock market listing. So firstly, Dan, is there anything we should be worried about in the markets this no, week? No, it's good for once. It's good news. Um, I've worked out that every single major market indices around the world is up this year, apart from one in India, um, which is a fantastic outcome if you think about going back to last year, what a difficult time the markets were. Um, this so, is better than your usual doom and gloom of the market. Well, I, I like it. Well done. I figured you'd been criticising me for being too <laughs> negative, so uh, I'm going for the positive spin. Um, so yeah, the, the, as we speak, the FTSE is actually up because trade talks have recommenced between China and the US. Obviously, that's very good for commodity producers in the hope that China will still be uh, a very big commodity consumer. Um, so we've had things like Cas Minerals, Rio Tinto, the big miners, looking at 10% gains this week. Um, but it's been a bad week for Domino's Pizza. Um, they've had a decent showing in the UK, but it's the overseas stuff is the problem. And again, they've come out with um, profits going to be the lower end of expectations. And they get, they're sort of flagging spending plans. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. Companies like ASOS and Just Eat um, talking about spending more money. Um, now, the market just doesn't like it. So they've had a tough time. But there's some quite bizarre figures in its uh, announcement, though. Um, so against all this negativity for, for Domino's, it's talking about on the Friday before Christmas, it was selling one pizza every 12 seconds. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's got this cheeseburger pizza, which is apparently one of the big sellers. Which sounds is, disgusting. It does. Pizza, beef, burger sauce and gherkins. Andy, is that your cup of tea? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> on a strict New Year diet at the moment. <laughs> I, I, in, in my role as a, as a reporter... Um, um, I've talked to Domino's many times, and I've, I have one thing that kept coming coming up in our conversations was um, product innovation because obviously a pizza is just a bit of bread with some stuff on top. Um, and over the years, they've tried to do things with stuffed crusts. So I don't know, Laura, do you do you like buying stuffed crusts pizza? No, I can't remember the last time I had a takeaway pizza. I think that probably makes me an anomaly, though. <laughs> so they, they they put things like uh, melted cheese in there, or they put hot dogs. But they said they did try one thing, which was a fail. Um, they did some tests, and they put fish fingers inside the crust. Um, it's not a surprise, really. But anyway, good good to see Domino's still trying to um, sort of find some way some way new of, of selling uh, a very a very. I think they should stop innovating product. now. <laughs> So, Laura, you've been digging through the fund data this week, uh, been looking at absolute return funds and how they performed. So, so these are ones sort of that they're aimed to to give you a good performance uh, in in good and bad market conditions. But have they done that? No. Oh dear. That's the end of the segment. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So these are funds that aim to kind of navigate the turmoil of markets and still make money even when markets are up, or at least try and limit your losses to a certain extent. Um, and so I looked back over the past three years, which obviously seen quite a lot of turmoil. That's been the three years of the Brexit period, um, just before the referendum. And only one fund has managed to deliver a positive return in each of those three years. Um, a Natixis fund. It's called Natixis H2O Multi Returns. 
So is, is there something uh, wrong with with how how those funds work, or is it just a case of bad luck? Do you think? With it's a mixture of things. Obviously, very difficult market. So there were a lot of funds that managed to achieve a positive return. So when we say positive return, I mean above zero. Um, a lot of funds managed to achieve that in 2016 and 2017, and then last year was the real killer. And the Texas fund was the only one that managed to continue that record um, into the three years. So we've obviously had a lot of market turmoil, as you talked about at the start. Markets were broadly down last year, um, but it's also I think around the way that a lot of these funds are marketed. They're marketed as kind of safe haven funds. And we've actually seen loads of investors flocking to them in recent years. So about £7 billion has been put into these funds over the three years of that Brexit process. Um, thinking that they're a kind of relatively cautious option, they're a safe haven option. But when you actually look at the performance figures of these funds, that some of them are going wildly up and down. And so they may have reached a positive return at the end of that three years, but the journey that they've taken investors through in that time is maybe not what some of those investors would have expected. Uh, I presume now that you know people drawing attention to the bad performance. This isn't the first time we've seen this as well. Um, if you follow the funds industry, um, you know, where next? Uh, is there a future for these funds, I guess, is the, is the big question. I think the difficulty is that within this big sector, as with all of the sectors and fund in fund world, there's some really good ones and then there's some that are really volatile and are perhaps not doing what the rest in the sector say they're doing. So it's another case that we're always banging on about, but it's about investors kind of digging through and working out exactly what that fund does, how it's performed, what it sets out to do, and, and also crucially, how it's going to achieve that. Are they just going to be fund managers saying they're making strategic bets or are they actually talking about how they're going to protect your losses or protect on the downside, as they would call it? Yeah, so it's good. good do definitely do your homework is the, is the key message I think with with this with these funds and and, then, and like you say any any investment that you make. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've been looking this week at how people are actually spending their money. So this is something that fascinates me. There's this thing called money diaries um, that I've become slightly obsessed with, and it's where people anonymously document what they spend in a week, um, and you get a real insight into how people are spending their money. Um, but we've got some government figures now that kind of give these this insight yeah so they're, they're saying that um so in in over the last year so households have spent 572 pounds 60 a week that's the highest since 2000 and 2005 adjusted for inflation um the slight concern of this is, is that people are actually dipping into their savings or they're borrowing money to fund this spending um we've been in this environment of low interest rates and that's actually um sort of, kind of incentivizing people to just go for credit rather than saving. So um, it's a very difficult situation. And, and you see that with the savings ratio, which is the lowest rec- since records began in 1963. So savings ratio is a percentage of the income that you, you have, uh, that you, you put aside for your savings. So really, th- there's got to be something done to encourage more people to save money. Um, don't rely on your on on credits, you know, borrowing, for, especially for you know for your day to day expenses. People need to find a way of of cutting their daily costs um, and being sort of better financial planning. Um, but, but if we drill down into some of the numbers, um, like transport, that's the highest category spend. Um, I guess there's little things people can do. Can you share? Do carpool if you're going to work? You know, do you really need to be one person in one car all the time? Um, can you use public transport more? In London, people. 
pay um, for their, their monthly travel card, depending on where they're traveling to. So it's split into sort of various zones. Uh, and I sort of worked out, actually, if, you, if you're coming from outside London into London, you, you go to zone two, which is just on the outskirts of the center, you can actually, you can save £100 a month or £1,200 a year simply by getting off the train and getting a bus for five minutes to, or, or 10 minutes to your work or, or walking you know, for half an hour. I suppose it, it, it's a question of have you got the time to do this extra stuff? But there are small ways I think you can cut your spending a bit. Um, under 30s, they're the biggest age group for takeaways. I guess it's to do with there's lots of apps out there making it quite easy to, to order stuff. Um, if you're age 50 or over, um, the biggest percentage of your, um, or if you're looking at housing expenditure, or almost a quarter of what you're spending is actually on doing up your house, which is quite interesting. Mm. Um, but I guess that's also because mortgage costs at that stage are either low or negligible at that point. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's what you've reached that lot point in your life, you, you may have paid off um, a good chunk of what, what you've got in your, your on your mortgage. Less on alcohol, actually. It's quite surprising. People yeah, spent, that surprised me. Yeah, so so a decade ago, we were spending £10.90 a week, and now it's only £8. So I guess it's... Um, we've certainly seen for the younger generation don't seem to be as interested in alcohol um, as perhaps uh, they were years ago, um, or where people just going a bit more fit and healthy. That, that's a, you know, Do you reckon you spend more than £8 a week on alcohol? Uh, I, I've never had alcohol in my life. So. <laughs> Andy, what do you reckon? Uh, I'm not answering that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think the the point is that there's some small tweaks you can do to adjust this spending and to reduce it down. Um, but also that boom in, in debt that you've been talking about, we definitely continually see numbers, of whether it's payday loans, whether it's credit cards, uh, are hitting kind of record highs. And so it's more about focusing on how you're spending that money and the fact that low interest rates won't necessarily continue forever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So now to our special guest. So last year, AJ Bell listed on the London stock market um, in what's called an initial public offering or an IPO. Um, and a number of the customers invested in that. So now the dust settled, we thought it would be interesting to get a behind the scenes look at how that listing actually works. So Andy, how are you feeling now the process is over? Uh, well, I think, I think I'm, I'd say I enjoyed it. Um, people, people warn you about uh, these processes uh, you're dealing with, analysts, investors uh, a whole new range of people and uh, it, it was actually just really good fun and you know, learned quite a lot you know it, it, it's a you know it's a great great privilege to have the chance to actually take a business you founded uh, actually 23 years ago now take it onto the public markets and uh, see what their reaction is um, we set about you know I think we we tried well, we certainly it's an understatement to say we did it slowly we started the process probably 11 years ago when Invesco first came on board as, a, as an institutional investor um, and that really ramped up at the back end of, of 2017 and then we thought well you know I'd spent a lot of time thinking about how we would do it and we did decide to to try and do it differently I think we wanted to to do it slowly uh, to do it publicly um, and to actually have our own IPO rather than one imposed on us by by the banks and, and by our advisors who naturally you just want these things you, you almost see them as a conveyor belt whereas we had thought quite a lot about how to do it and you know, on a number of levels we did we did do things differently so you know we had the the retail element was one which we were warned would overcomplicate it and, and you know, might you know, we might live to regret I think that was a real real positive um, so this was where customers in of AJ Bell were able to buy shares in the IPO which normally is kind of ring fence just for Fund managers, for example, uh, isn't exactly. It? You know, most IPOs are, are really 
um, you know, jobs for the boys. You know, the the fund management industry comes together with the banks, and they they are they are parcelled up and and divvied out. And you know, as a business, it just wouldn't have felt right if we if we did that. So, um, but but actually, the whole IPO process it, it's not really pro the retail investor there's you know the, the institutional investors get a lot more information than the retail investors do which is a frustration we managed to to knock down some of those walls but still uh, there were there were some frustrations that it did feel as though the whole system was 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 geared up to you know, to suit the the fund managers but yeah they were an important part of the process you know they took about 80 80 of the of the shares on offer and we had a ring fence 20 percent for the uh, for our, our retail customers so this is so, so customers um the first chance they they get to to own a slice of say aj bell did it did did they, did they get all that they wanted in terms of the in the, the ipo offer or well, no one did. Is, is a simple answer to that. I think that one of the challenges we had when we decided to IPO was that actually none of us wanted to sell our shares, which is uh, you know a fairly major obstacle kind of crucial. <laughs> in trying to <laughs> trying to list a business. But then we had a conversation with Invesco, who were the largest shareholder, and we managed to get a situation where they agreed to come down from forty four percent to twenty five percent. I wanted to be the largest shareholder again, which had not been for some time, so I agreed to come down from 28% to 25%. Management followed me all by selling 10% of their shareholders. That gave us just enough stock to um, um, to actually satisfy what's called the free float rules of the, of the stock exchange. There needs to be enough enough shares in, in, in circulation so as the market doesn't dry up. So so we ticked that box, um, and then we went on the, on the road, did it quite early, we had an early look, um, round of meetings where we saw investors and really that group of institutional investors we saw back in May were the ones who we kept that we, we it was almost what's called a club deal where we, we just kept it to a small tight group of, of institutional investors um, and I think when it came to it they, there was there was an awful lot of demand for the shares at the at the time of the IPO, when we we we'd done our final roadshow, um, and a, a, a big part of of the final day is is the allocation process, and what we need to do, we need to shut ourselves in a room. We had two pots of shares, one to divvy up between our our customers, and one to divvy up between the institutional uh, investors. And you know the truth is, is that nobody got what they wanted. Um, we, we tried to make it as, as, as fair as possible, um, both in in terms of allocation and the price. Yeah, you know, we priced at at the midpoint of the range. If you remember, uh, we could have actually priced it higher, but I wanted to give a message out to the market that a we're not being greedy, and had we gone on a higher price, we probably would have lost some of the high quality institutional investors who we really targeted in the process, and would have had to replace them with others who may have been. It would be less of a long-term nature in in the relationship with us, very much like Invesco. Invesco joined us in 2007 and have stayed with us all on the journey, and hopefully be with us for many a long year. We just want another, you know, another 25 Invescos on the institutional side, and our customers then will benefit. So those holding shares, you know, will will you will take the benefit of that. But you know, I think our our, our retail customers, I think that any disappointment. In, in the amount of shares they got has, has hopefully been made up for by the fact that the shares have done pretty well since um, since the seventh of December. So what was the what was the day like though? You, you took your family, didn't you, to the stock market? To I, the I really thought it was going to be a, a big a big disappointment if I'm honest. <laughs> Only for the fact that I think you know certainly my wife and my kids had this idea uh, of the stock exchange being open outcry, and when I told them we were in the effectively in the foyer of an office in in Paternoster Square, uh, <laughs> it didn't quite evoke the same emotions but you know, so we had about 60 people down there uh, we had um, all senior management uh, we had uh, and, and, and families in some cases uh, certainly my family were there 
it was lovely to see Nicholas again, who was set the business up with. He he came to the event. Uh, Jim Martin, our, our, our ex-chairman, uh, was there. He was a big part of the journey uh, towards an IPO. The rest of our board were there. So there's a, there's a really good crowd and a sense from speaking to people in Stock Exchange. It had quite a different feel than the many IPOs going through uh, going through that process. It was very much a, a friends and family, and you know, we, we've worked with a lot of the people there for for many a long year. So as well as as work colleagues, they are they are friends as well. And I stood there, and you have a, like a screen with a countdown, and it counts down. I was thinking, oh, this is just you know, we, I'm not. Uh, and all of a sudden, the nerves started hitting <laughs> my stomach, and I thought, in about eight seconds, the market is going to tell us whether we've priced it right at, at one pound sixty or not. And I, I can't quite remember the details, but it came up as one pound sixty, and and then it went to £1.64, and then it went to £1.70, and at I just sighed a huge sigh of relief, thought, you know what, I think we've we've done it here. And then it went down to £1.64, and I could just, oh no, it's just going to drop through the floor. And that whole emotion, though, yeah, it really was emotional at the time. Um, and then we stayed around for an hour, uh, and a lot of the stock exchange people, because A, the share price was going up, you know, <laughs> interesting, the day before um, the the IPO, I took two phone calls from people saying to me, are you going to pull the IPO? The stock markets were in such a terrible condition that they couldn't believe it when they said, oh no, we're, we're going we're gonna to fire on ahead with it. You know, I've been planning this for 11 years. I'm not going to back out now. If anyone wants to buy our business, they're buying it for the next 10 years. If they're put off by, a little, you know, by some turbulence in the stock market, then we don't want them as, as shareholders. So, but it did make me stop and think, actually, am I doing the right thing? And then lo and behold, uh, I think again from memory, uh, the share price had gone from 160 through two pound to two pound ten in the afternoon. I took a phone call from one of the national newspapers, uh, in the in the politest way, accusing me of underpricing the IPO. <laughs> You're thinking, well, actually, uh, you know, it's impossible to please people in this world. But uh, I, I, and it, you know, it, it was yeah, and that to me sort of it brought home the madness of it all. Uh, and really, I've been saying to all of our staff, you know, really, it's it's no different going forward. We've managed to. All we've done, all, all all this work, all these fees, all they've done is get us a share price. If the business changes in any way, then something's gone wrong. Um, and one of the things that people won't have realised, probably, is that um, now when you do an IPO, you don't actually have a bell, do you? But you took your own bell along? Yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is in fairness to the marketing department. We were sat there thinking, you know, part of doing the IPO was to increase our brand exposure and... Um, yeah, we looked and thought, yeah, are there any ways we can do this? And you know, someone made the uh, the rather cheesy suggestion that we take our own bell down to the stock exchange. And uh, you know, we you're probably like lots of others. I assume that somewhere there was a bell. And actually, I think yeah, there was a bell that opened the stock exchange. But uh, I think around the time of Big Bang, that that was was put in a cupboard somewhere. So we thought, well, you know, if we are going to be stood, um, uh, you know, opening the open the stock exchange, then we should make a bit of noise about it. So we we have got a bell that's, that's actually now in the office. That so when the when the when the clock finally reached uh, zero, um, for the first time in thirty years, the London Stock Exchange was opened by by a bell <laughs> ringing a bell, which, <laughs> as cheesy it sounds, actually brought a few smiles on the day. I like that you've kept the bell as well. And we, yeah, it's there for anyone who wants to come to our office. Uh, it's on a plinth as you come through the front door. <laughs> And so we've talked a bit about the share price. It's obviously done quite well since float day, but how how bothered are you by that? Well, as an old adage, in, you know, as a CEO of a business, you you can only manage the business. You can't manage the share price. And I think there are people in the past who've tried to manage the share price, and I think it's a it, it's a fool's game, uh, to be honest. I think you've just got to keep running the business. Uh, I think 
you know, clearly we, you know, there are expectations out in the market. Um, uh, you would hate to think that you wouldn't deliver on them. Um, but, you know, again, we've had 11 years dealing with Invesco where every six months I'd go and we'd give you, you we're not allowed to give forecasts um, as a company in in the, in the PLC world, but as a private company with institutional investors, we're well used to giving forecasts and hitting those forecasts, never busting through them to the point where people said, okay, well, you're just holding something back and never falling short of them. So it does feel as though that 10 or 11 years was a was a really good practice for, for being in the public markets and making sure we have the confidence to, to actually deliver on the numbers that, that either out there. But clearly, circumstances change. But for me, it's... It, it, it's it, it, it's certainly not worrying about the, the share price. What I said to staff is they can have a sneaky peak once a week is, is what they're allowed. Uh, I've got to be honest, I sometimes peak more than once a week, but you know I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wean myself off it. Um, but I think the real thing that's brought it home to me is not to, you know, the, the whole world of, of, of your PLC world, it, it, it runs to a quarterly timetable of reporting. And it, I can see it's been so easy to get dragged into that. Your, your time horizon for business planning is the next quarterly report. And if there's one thing that really brought it home starkly to me, and we've always had the confidence to do it with our institutional investors, is say, look, we've got a three, five, ten year horizon with this business. Okay, you look at the quarterly results, we'll explain what's happened. But you've got to believe in us over that long term in order to be a shareholder. If you don't believe in us in that long term, then uh, you know, you're not someone who I particularly wants on the shareholder register. And so what was the, of that whole IPO process, what was the hardest part of it? I think there's different phases. There's, the, there's, there's an information overload, you know, you, you really are bound up in, you know, in documents where you're just having to read them and read them and read them. Um, that, that, was, that was probably the hardest part, and that was actually a short period because we, we stretched it out. We started quite early, and we had a really good team around us. We brought in a project manager who was well-versed with with IPOs, so they, they took a lot of the donkey work off us, which really the, the big danger for anyone thinking of, of going through an IPO is don't forget you've got to run the business while you're doing it. Uh, and therefore you do need a team around you. The finance department, your legal department inevitably will be get drawn into it. But if the rest of the executive team, and in particular the CEO, are spending too much time on the IPO, then it really can have adverse consequences. But I do give store to the fact that we, we had prepared for this for so long that our board were all in place, our governance was all in place. We were dealing with the the real hardcore documents required to so the prospectus, the registration document, uh, the long form report, all, all the bits. But you know that wasn't as bad as it sounds and actually the investor bit I really enjoyed you know we met some of the brightest people in the industry uh, some of the analysts some of the investors and you know the, the questions we got were almost exclusively incredibly insightful and challenging and fair questions and, and I think that you know I think we've, we've been in the fortunate position where we can choose our shareholder register well by keeping it to that club where we start you know over the 25 firms we saw in the early look I think 23 of them ended up as shareholders and we probably only let another two in into that process um, along the way. So, uh, you know, I think I think for that, I think we'll be, um, we'll be rewarded in the future. And I presume it's not uh, made you think about running the business any, any differently. It's, it's, it's business as usual, isn't it? So I, I think it's, it's reminded me and reinforced me that I've got to make 
probably more of a conscious effort to carry on running the business the same, mm. you know, and not get not let other people draw me in to try and do it differently. And and, and that's it's back to the long term view. We've always, you know, maybe as an actuary, that that's your training teaches you to look into the past to learn for the future, where everything has got a long term horizon. And I think again, it's probably reminded me that maybe that is one of the strengths I've got in business is just to keep looking for for that long term horizon rather than get too worried about the the short term bumps in the road or uh, or even even tailwinds we might we might benefit from and talking of long term you mentioned that you brought your family to the to the launch on the ipo do, you, do any of your children have they got a future to be running the business uh, i hope not <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no we've actually got one who does he works on a tuesday so he's yeah. uh he's doing his a levels at the moment so for work experience he works on a tuesday but uh, i don't sense any of them have, have got any uh, none of them are particularly academic um I think it's either sport or horses seems to be the uh, the the draw for them. So I don't think there are any worries about the you know another bell uh, ever running the business. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply. <laughs>